Judges chapter 19. I'm going to pray and ask that the Lord will bless his word. Lord, thank you that we can come here this morning. And Lord, that we can come uh, before this um, difficult passage in many ways. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless us in it, in the hearing of it. Teach us, Lord, we pray. We need to hear from you. And so, Lord, we ask uh, that we'd humble ourselves. Lord, we ask that you'd give us ears to hear of what you have to say and plant it into our hearts. But we need to hear from you. And so we ask, Lord, that you would speak. In your precious name, I pray all these things. Amen. I was thinking, on a dark night, when you look up into the sky, how many stars can you see? A dark night, when you look up into the sky, how many stars can you see? I was reading this article on The Guardian, and they were saying because of light pollution, what's, what's happening about five years ago, if you were in a city, because of light pollution, they reckon with the naked eye, if all, all things are going well, if it's you know optimal conditions or whatever, they possibly, if you're looking up into the sky in a, in a city, you might see maybe 200 stars in the sky. But the reality is nowadays with, with all the light pollution, you... I am going to do it again. I'm going to turn this thing off. <laughs> um, is that okay? I haven't blown anything. Hopefully you can hear me anyway. I'll put this down. Uh, they were saying in, in, in big cities right now, because of light pollution, what you would see is probably around 100 stars if you are even lucky. And the reality is that there's a lot more than 100 stars. There are billions of stars. And if the conditions were really good, say if you were like out in the country or whatever, if the conditions were really, really good and you had no light pollution at all, I, you know, I did, I did my research. It was a Google search. I did, I did, did a good Google search. You know, it's, I, I, I asked Google, Google, how many stars can we see on a good day? So take that re as reliable as you like. And they, they said, Google said, um, about 3,000 or so stars. It's possible with the naked eye. Not sure. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. The fact is there are billions of stars and we cannot see them all. And the unique thing about that is with light pollution and all that, the darker things get, the brighter the light shines. The more you go out into country and the darker things get, the more stars you will see and the brighter the light shines. This passage that we're looking at this morning is probably the darkest passage there is in the scriptures. It is not fun to read, and in many ways it is not fun to preach. And yet I would say, in these final chapters of the book of Judges, the darker things get, the brighter the light actually shines. And sometimes we need to look into that darkness and, and see the reality of the darkness of the world and the reality of the darkness of our sin so that we can see the beauty and the brightness of what we have in Christ. And so that's why I think we're here this morning in these chapters. God doesn't make a mistake in writing these chapters in Scripture and leaving it there for us. God doesn't make a mistake in having you here this morning with us. These are words from God to us that we need to hear. 
And so what we've been looking at as we go through, as we've gone through the book of Judges over the weeks and months is that pattern that I've been talking to you about with most of the judges, that pattern of sin and suffering and sadness and salvation and that that pattern of solitude, that there is 40 years of peace or whatever, or 80 years of peace when it came after the judge's reign. That was the pattern that we saw. And I was walking through that pattern through each of the judges. And what we saw in sin, suffering, sadness, salvation, and solitude is that slowly that pattern started to break down. Suddenly people weren't sad over their sin anymore. Suddenly they weren't calling out to God anymore. And so that pattern broke down. And I think what will help us this morning as we look at these three chapters together is to think of three words that are within that pattern. The three words are this, sin, suffering, and sadness. In chapter 19, we see sin. In chapter 20, we see suffering. And in chapter 21, we see sadness. Now in these chapters, as we look at them together, I'm going to mainly focus on chapter 19. In fact, most of the sermon is going to be that. So you're, you're, you're going to be along for the ride. And, and as we're in chapter 19, you're saying, you still got two chapters to go. It, we will fly through them in many ways. But I want us to focus in on chapter 19. First, in chapter 19, what we see is the sin of God's people. Sin. Chapter 19, verse 1. Let me read a couple of verses to you. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and he went away from him to her father's house at Beth and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for some months. Here's what you have, the sin of God's people. And it begins in the first verse saying, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And what do you expect at the end of that sentence? In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so this is a literary way of saying, he's going to say, in those days, there was no king of Israel. And what you're supposed to do is fill in the rest of the sentence. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this is a literary way of saying what's going to happen in the rest of chapter 19 is guess what? Everything you're going to see, because they have no king in Israel, everybody is going to do what is right in their own eyes. In modern day language, everyone's just going to follow after their own heart. And when you follow after your own heart, guess what happens? You sin because their hearts are deceitful. And so in this, you see the sin of the Levite. The Levite, what he is doing is he is strolling around the place. And again, this Levite seems to have no home. And that God's people were supposed to allocate the Levites a land. Uh, 48 cities were to be determined for the Levites. But because God's people didn't take over the land like they should have done, this Levite is roaming around the place. And this Levite, who's supposed to be the spiritual leader of God's people, who's supposed to be the mediator between God and man, this Levite who's supposed to be the example, what does he have? He has a concubine with him. And the concubine, for some, this concubine would have been the second wife. Or maybe the mistress. And sometimes people would have multiple concubines as well as their wife. And so here you have this Levite 
going against the law of the Lord, when the Lord would say, no, one man for one woman. Therefore, in, Je in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This Levite knew that reality. It was supposed to be one man for one woman, and yet here he is with his concubine, his mistress. So he's roaming around in the reality of his sin. He is meant to be an example to people. And that is exactly what leaders are supposed to be. They are supposed to be examples. And yet, unfortunately, what we have in many different religions is leaders going off on their own and doing their own thing. And so the corruption of God's people is exemplified in their spiritual leadership. I was reading on a book on, a leader, on leadership a, a while back, and he said this, the speed of the leader, the speed of the team. As goes the leader, so goes the team. As goes this spiritual leader, so goes the nation. He is doing what is right in his own eyes. And the concubine in verse 2, it tells us that the concubine, she too was unfaithful. This concubine was unfaithful to the Levite because she left him. And what is she doing? She is doing what is right in her own eyes. And that word faithful, unfaithful, is essentially the word of of. of of whoring in the scripture or prostituting yourself in the scripture. It is the same word that is used in Judges chapter 2, verse 17, Judges chapter 8, verse 27, and Judges chapter 8, verse 33, which talks about this prostituting of yourself. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. She leaves him for four months. She goes away. And so he decides, hey, I want her back. And so in pursuing her and wanting her back, he gets his donkeys, he gets his servant, he starts to pursue her, and when he pursues her, he comes to the father's house, and the father sees him, and he welcomes him in with joy. And when the father welcomes him in with joy, he, he, he asks him to have something to eat, and then in verse 4 it says this, And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. So he comes for his concubine. And he comes for his concubine. And he's calling his concubine to come back with him. But the father says, no, you know what? Just, just stay. Just stay. We'll, we'll eat and we'll drink and we'll be merry. Just stay. And, and so what they do is they stay for three days. And after the three days, do you know what the, what the Levite wants to do? He wants to leave. He wants to take his concubine back with him, and so he wants to leave. But then in verse 7, we are told, And when the man rose up at the end of the three days, when he rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the, the night there. And so now he spent the night for a fourth day. And after the fourth day, the Levi gets up and he says, Right, I'm going to take my donkeys, I'm going to take my servant, I'm going to take my concubine, and we are going to go. This guy is keeping me here, he keeps feeding me, he keeps giving me drink, he, all he wants me to do is stay. And yet what happens in verse 8? On the fifth morning, on the fifth day, he rose early in the morning. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. Verse 9. 
And when the man and his concubine and his servants rose up to go and depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. Stay another night. Don't just stay three nights. Don't just stay four nights. Stay five nights. What does the father do? What's the father wanting? He doesn't want his daughter to leave. And in many ways, you wish she hadn't left. But this was too much for the man, verse 10. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. Verse 11. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night here. In other words, let us spend the night with foreigners. Let us spend the night with the Canaanites. That's where we should spend the night. In verse 12. And his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah, which is the place of the Benjaminites. Listen, we're not going to be safe with these foreigners. So we're not going to spend the night here. What are we going to do? We're actually going to spend the night with God's people in Gibeah, which is where God's people are Benjamin, and surely we will be safer there if we spend the night there. They end up getting to Gibeah, they're in the town square, and when you're in the town square and you don't have a place to stay, you expect God's people to be hospitable and offer you a home. They're staying in the town square, and yet nobody offers them a place to stay. No one offers them a home. So here he is with his servant, his donkeys, his concubine. The Levite is there with nowhere to go, except this old man comes along, and he walks past. The old man, he isn't a Benjaminite, he's from Ephraim. The old man walks past and says, what are you doing here? And they say, well, we're spending the night here. We have nowhere to go. We have nowhere to stay. And he says to them these words in verse 20. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into the house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet, and ate, and drank. So the old man, who's not even from the place, is the only one who is willing to give them accommodation for the night. He's the only one willing to give the donkeys accommodation, the concubine accommodation, the Levite accommodation for the night. And so he brings them in. He offers them this place to stay. And they eat, and they drink. And you think, surely... It is going to be a peaceful night with God's people in Benjamin. And yet we hear some of the worst verses in all of Scripture. Verse 22. And they were making their hearts merry, the old man and the Levite. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, Benjaminites, God's people, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may 
know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. You think the old man is a good guy. Don't do this vile thing. Don't seek to take this man out so that you can know him. This is a disgrace. But verse 24, do you know what he said? Behold, here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So they seized, so the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. What do we see in these verses? We see everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. What do we see in these verses? We see Sodom in these verses. Sodom has come to God's people. God's people have become exactly like the Canaanites. This is a mirror image of what happened with Lot at Sodom. They were traveling. They were looking for a place to stay. They stayed the night in the square. Nobody gave them accommodation. Someone allowed him in, Lot, and then the people of Sodom and Gomorrah came to the door and said, let them out so that we might know you. What in effect is happening here is Judges 19 is Genesis 19 all over again. Except the difference is this is God's people. This is the sin of God's people. This is where idolatry leads to. This is where false worship leads to. Disgraceful sin. You know something? Not all sin is the same in God's sight. Not all sin is the same in God's sight. Now, well-meaning Christians will say, well, all sin is the same in God's sight. And in, in, many, in many ways, you could say, all of us will be judged for our sin. And if we are not forgiven for our sin, the punishment of eternity will be the same for everyone, everyone, no matter what you have done, if you haven't accepted the forgiveness of Christ. And yet, we must acknowledge that not all sin is the same in God's sight. The reason I say that is because sin has different earthly consequences, doesn't it? Like if I was to lie to my friend, verbally lie to my friend, that would have different consequences than if I was to punch my friend in the face. Or if I was to kill my friend. Both sins, but definitely different consequences, right? Not all sins are the same in God's sight. 
And even sins in God's sight, not all sins will receive the same punishment. We see that in the scriptures. In the Mosaic law, there is different punishments for different types of sins. There is even different types of sins, unintentional sins and intentional sins. We see that throughout the scripture. We see God's anger come against the leaders in many ways for their sin more than the people and their sin. There's different results, consequences. There's different punishments for sin. And even Jesus, when he was talking to people in Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, and warning them because they did not believe and trust in his teaching and in his miracles, Jesus was saying to people, it will be worse for you on the day of judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. Which means not all sin will be punished in exactly, exactly the same way. There's different severity for sin. And the reason I say all that is because we must realize there are some sins in our lives that you could say, making up this category, but are more kind of normal sins. You might feel like you get away with it because there's smaller consequences, right? There's certain sins where there's smaller consequences, so there's normal sins. But then there are very grievous sins where there are very big consequences, and that's what we see here in this passage. Grievous sin with big consequences. And so sometimes we look at these grievous sins and we say, there's no way that's going to happen to me or any of God's people. There's no way we would commit any sort of sin in any way that would resemble any of this. And yet the passage is here for our instruction and for our warning. Because the reality is, with our sin, it often progresses. You know, the person who murders, right? Usually, not always, but usually, the person who murders doesn't just murder on the spot. What happens? It probably began with unchecked sin, unchecked anger, in their lives, maybe some of their background, which led them on the path to the progression of murder. This is what is happening with God's people. It is unchecked sin, unchecked idolatry, unchecked worship, in which they give false worship to false gods, which leads them to this place. When someone commits adultery, often it doesn't just happen on the spur of a moment. Usually there is a progression that leads to that sin. The progression may start with, with simple lust on the phone or on the computer or whatever that, that builds into an increased habit that leads to the final sin of adultery. When someone robs a bank, they don't usually just start out by robbing a bank. Usually these sins progress unchecked. And so what I think the warning is for us as God's people, as we read passages like this, is to realize and see where our false worship and where our idolatry will lead. It will lead to devastating consequences. And so we as God's people need to ask ourselves, what sin in my life am I leaving unchecked? What sin in my life do I feel 
I'm getting away with now, and it's fine. I think this passage would call on us to see this warning, repent of our sin, and don't leave our sin unchecked. So what happened the next day when this Levite gets up? Verse 27. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the door, she's been out there all night with the men of the town, the Benjaminites. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up. Let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. After the night she has had, get up. Let's go. This is a horrible man, and he is reflecting the horrible state of God's people. Do you know what he decides to do? Verse 29. When he entered his house, he took a knife and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. He takes this concubine, he divides her up, he sends the pieces of her out to all the tribes of Israel. He has a message of this disgraceful tribe of Benjamin and what they are doing. I want you just to notice the last words of verse 30. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Other translations will say, think over it. What has just happened, what we've just read about, think over it, discuss it, and speak up. Another translation, think about it. What we've just read, think about it, consider it, and tell us what to do. Finally, another translation. Of chapter 19, take careful note of it, discuss it, and speak. Do you know what the church does with chapter 19? Ignore it, put it under the carpet, and don't say a word. That's what the church does. Do you know what the church often does with the book of Judges? Ignore it, don't talk about it, don't speak. It's dodgy, it's weird, it's confusing, it's hard to hear, it's hard for me to say. I had no fun in preparing this this week. No fun whatsoever. In fact, last night, I'll be honest with you, last night, I was late last night asking the Lord, what way am I going to do this? I don't know what to do. This doesn't fill me with the warm fuzzies. Give me a passage that gives me the warm fuzzies, and then I can say it to people, and we'll all pat each other on the back and leave. But no, no, we're to take careful note, discuss it and speak. 
Which means we are to see this passage for us as a warning and not ignore it. It tells us this is where your false worship will lead you. Be careful. There is a warning. All scripture, including this passage, is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. We need it for our lives. So I believe God would have us hear this warning this morning to repent of our sin, be careful with it in what we do. That is the sin of God's people. Now briefly, I want us to look at the suffering and sadness of God's people. Chapter 20, it says this, the suffering of God's people. Then all the people of Israel came out, chapter 20, verse 1, came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? Because they all received the pieces of the body. How did this all happen? How did this all take place? Verse 4, and the Levite, the husband of the woman who, who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. I and my concubine to spend the night. And the leaders of Gisbeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. Against me by night. They rose up against me. They meant to kill me. And they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout. How is that even logical? I don't know. Cut her to pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, the people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. Verse 8. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot and we will take 10 men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of the, and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of 10,000 to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. I want you to see two things from those verses. I want you to see the Levite's apparent transparency. He comes, they ask, well, what happened? Why did we receive all these pieces? And he says, verse 5, and the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she died. That's transparent, isn't it? Isn't that what happened? Well, no, not exactly. What does he leave out? He, leave out, he leaves out the fact that he threw her out. He leaves out the fact that he left her there all night. He leaves out the fact that he came and said, Get up, let's go. 
He's blame shifting. It's amazing how we can change the story, right? When we're guilty. I don't know if you're ever tempted to change the story. When you're caught in your sin, you're caught in your lies, you change the story. That's exactly what he does. It's his apparent transparency. And then what I want you to see is Israel's unity. The end of verse 1, it says, they assembled as one man. At the start of verse 8, it says, all the people arose as one man. At the end of verse 11, it says, they were united as one man. What does that tell us? Finally, God's people have got their act together. Finally, they have united against for this battle. Except it is against their own people. This is what they were supposed to do when they were taking the land. But they didn't do it. They weren't united. And now here they are, against their own people, united against their own people, to fight against their own people. It is all a bit little too late. Unity over the wrong thing. God's people finally are ready to go into battle, except it's God's people versus God's people. It wasn't supposed to be that way. So they go into battle. There's three days of battle. The first day, they go up against Benjamin. And really, the reality is, this is Judah against Benjamin. That's really important, because down through the line of Judah, there will be King David. And down through the line of Benjamin, there will be King Saul. It's like it's king against king. And this first battle, God's people, they lose 22,000 men in the first day of battle, verses 19 down to 23. In the second day of battle, they lose 18,000 men in verses 24 down to 28. And finally, on the last day of the battle, the Lord goes with them. And down in verse 35, it says this. Chapter 20, verse 35. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day. And all those were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. That is the suffering of God's people. The summary of the war is given to us again. And then we come to the very last, chap- very last verse of the chapter. Verse 48. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found, they set on fire. The suffering of Benjamin because of their sin. They were absolutely and utterly destroyed by who? Israel? They were defeated ultimately by the Lord. It was the Lord's judgment on Benjamin that came. And yet there was only 600 men of Benjamin left. At the end of this battle, there is fire for Benjamin. It is judgment. It is suffering. Here's what we learn. All sin, all sin leads to suffering. 
all sin leads to suffering. Suffering in small ways, maybe the suffering of a guilty conscience or the suffering of hurting those around you because of your sin. But all sin ultimately will lead to suffering. That is what the cross tells us. All sin at the cross, it led to suffering. It is serious. Sin must be dealt with. And so that is what Jesus took on the cross. That is why Jesus suffered death on the cross by those nails and by that crown of thorns because our sin is serious and must be dealt with. And if your sin is not dealt with on the cross and by Christ's death on the cross, then the punishment for your sin will not be earthly fire but eternal fire. You see, every single picture of judgment that we see in the scriptures, whether it is the flood or whether it is the fire on this occasion, it is all a small picture of judgment that is pointing us to the final day of judgment that is going to come upon all those who do not have Christ, who have not believed in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. All sin will lead to suffering. And if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be the suffering of fire. And if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will be His suffering on your behalf. All sin leads to suffering. And that is why it is so important for us to turn to Christ. Because all sin will lead us that way. Sin, suffering, and then finally sadness. What I'm going to do in this chapter is just read to you three verses to show you the sadness that all sin brings. Chapter 21, verse 1. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. God's people, Israel, are weeping because they have destroyed Benjamin, leaving them with only 600 men, which means the tribe is going to be absolutely annihilated and destroyed. Our own people, because of all this mess, they are done. And so they are weeping before the Lord. They are asking for the Lord's help. But what they decide to do is they decide to take things into their own hands because they do what is right in their own sight. And so these 600 men, well, they need 600 wives. And so what they do is they decide to steal wives in verse 12, and they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins and had who had not known a man by lying with them, and they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. So they find these 400 young uh, women from Jabesh Gilead, and they steal them. And then they go to Shiloh, and they find 200 young women who are worshiping the Lord and dancing at Shiloh, and they steal them to perpetuate the tribe of Benjamin. And what are they doing? whatever their heart desires. They're solving their sin problem with more sin. They're trying to solve sin with sin. 
And what you've got is just a picture of absolute chaos and mess amongst God's people because God's people were not doing what God had called them to do. And the conclusion is, the last verses in the book of Judges, chapter 21, verse 25, after stealing all these wives for themselves, it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, there was no ruler, there was no king, there was no authority, and therefore everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Everybody followed after their own heart. And you could just say, the end. But I said to you, the darker things get, the brighter the light shines. And yet when you look at this passage, you say, well, I certainly see the darker. Got darker for the concubine. It got darker for those wives. It got darker for Benjamin. I see the darkness. I don't see the light. But the reality is we know the end of the story, don't we? There is no king in Israel, but there would be a king who would come. Born in Bethlehem. Born as a savior. Born as a bright light in this dark world. Born to give you and I salvation. Born to give those who do what is right in their own eyes hope of salvation in Him. This is what the book of Judges is longing for. That is why it is so messed up. You have all these judges. You have six major judges, six minor judges. These six major judges, you're saying, they're all messed up. Samson's messed up. Jephthah's messed up. All of them are messed up. And then you look at the six minor judges, Shamgar and all those guys. You say, all those, they are messed up. Well, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for a proper warrior, a proper deliverer. You're waiting for the seventh judge. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Constantly within this passage, what has it been telling us? For the past few weeks, there was no king in Israel. There's 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 no king in Israel. What does it produce in us? A longing for a king. Someone who's going to rule and reign with justice. Someone who we can follow. A great priest who doesn't do what is right in his own eyes. A great prophet who speaks truth into our lives. And a great king who leads us. Who doesn't just wear a crown of gold in order for people to, to praise him. No, he came and he wore a crown of thorns to suffer for us. Jesus, our king, came. And that is what the book of Judges points to. That is the bright light in the midst of this darkness. And that is the one we are to have as king in our lives. Jesus is our ruler. Jesus is the one who reigns. We should seek to praise and live for him. That's the book of Judges. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it. Now, Lord, there are some times where we go through difficult passages, go through the mess in which sin leads to. 
And Lord, I pray that we would not stay in the darkness this morning. But I pray that we'd be reminded of the light that we have in the Lord Jesus. Lord, there are many times we look at the news and we see a world where everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. But I pray that we would always know and be reminded that we have a king who rules and reigns. So, Lord Jesus, I pray that we would trust him as king for the forgiveness of all our sins. In your precious and wonderful name, I pray these things. Amen.